politics and above religion, a moral authority exists known globally as the ageless wisdom. It is the study of consciousness, the mystery of awareness, which cannot be measured, yet will not be denied. Stay tuned as we explore consciousness, the fundamental nature of reality. Welcome to the Ageless Wisdom Mystery School with Michael Benner. KPFK on your radio, this is Michael Benner with the Ageless Wisdom Mystery School. We're here every Tuesday now at 1 p.m. in the afternoon and streaming for the world at kpfk.org. Thanks a lot for being with us. This is essentially an interview program about mysticism, metaphysics, the study of consciousness. It's a non-religious approach to the nature of the soul, who we are, and what we're for. And in that sense, we normally feature a guest. And again, I will have a guest for us this afternoon, Steve Tobman. Dr. Steve Tobman is going to talk about healing emotional hurt. But like last week, I need to begin this program with a few comments about current events from a non-political as well as a non-religious point of view. Because spirituality, if it's about anything, it's about morality. It's about values and ethics and our aspirations to be the best people that we can be. And so again, we're not here to comment on political policies. We're not here on this program anyway to engage in partisanship or electoral politics in any way. But given what happened last Wednesday, from an ethical point of view, in terms of morality and decency, and the human rights addressed by the Bill of Rights, the first ten amendments to the U.S. Constitution. In that regard, I think we need to make a few comments about what happened, what we're in the middle of, and what the future may hold for us. Because in many ways, this is not over. We're not sure what's going to happen on the inauguration day, January 20th, or the day after, but looks very much like more assaults are planned. But it seems quite clear that these hate groups, these domestic terrorists on the right, the Klan, the Nazis, the Proud Boys, much of the Republican Party will persist in their attempt to undercut and eventually destroy democracy altogether. This goes beyond Donald Trump. The effort to undermine democracy can be traced back to its roots, if you want to go back far enough. It can be traced back to so-called conservatives, Republicans, resisting Social Security and Medicare and Medicaid and the Voting Rights Act, uh, fair housing. We can see in the Reagan administration statements like, government does not solve problems, government is the problem. And constant efforts by the right to reduce their tax burden, shifting it to the middle class and the working class and complaining about not having the money to fund a safety net, basic human needs, to feed the hungry, to house the homeless. 
More recently, we see an alignment with the Soviet Union and an attempt to destroy what the Russians call Atlanticism. And so right out of the gate, Donald Trump was attacking our NATO alliances and attempting to undercut the strength of these post-World War II efforts to shore up and strengthen Western democracy, favoring instead dictatorships like those of Putin and North Korea and Saudi Arabia. And so as Trump leaves office, a big part of this insurgency will be undercut for, to a large extent, it is a personality cult as well as a death cult. But the Trump army will remain. Right-wing domestic terrorists will continue to organize and disrupt and attack decent people and their institutions. So I'd like to take a few minutes to talk about the components of this Trump army, that which will remain when Trump is gone off to Mar-a-Lago and perpetual golfing or exile to Russia or whatever the hell does happen to Donald Trump. And I think we need to consider that the Trump base, the Trump army, is made up of four basic components. And some of these people are in more than one of these four groups. But I think it'll help us to understand who we're dealing with in the post-Trump era if we look more carefully at these four groups. The first is the racists. This runs the gamut from the hardcore racist who just hates anyone who's not white to those who benefit from white privilege without really being conscious of their stake in being white. In other words, I may be uneducated, I may be ignorant and misinformed, I may not have a decent job, but it's not likely I'll ever get an education and have a good job, but at least I'm white. And I can't allow the privilege of being white, the false sense of superiority that I have to be taken away from me by the simple fact that as America grows, it becomes more of a plurality until it's no longer a white majority nation. That's terrifying to those who think of themselves as being white rather than simply being a human being. And when I say unconscious, I'm talking about, for example, the tendency or the ability, let's say, of a white person to argue with a cop when they get pulled over, to push back, to get angry. Uh, you know, I pay your salary. Why aren't you out there catching real criminals and so Without any thought that he might be shot in the back seven times. Not fully appreciating the privilege that he or she enjoys. The countless Karens, so-called, who call the police because there are some black people at the community swimming pool or barbecuing in a city park, as if they have no right to be there. And not even giving a thought to the hypocrisy and the ridiculousness of their sense of having some law being violated. Racism, born of the genocide of indigenous peoples, 
born of slavery and Jim Crow and promulgated by Donald Trump and other so-called conservatives through their xenophobia, their desire to build a wall. Although decades earlier, they were so proud of Ronald Reagan telling Gorbachev to tear down this wall. Walls separating nations were a bad thing in Germany, but somehow became a good thing on America's southern border. So that's the first group in the Trump base, the racists. The second group is very similar. Many of them are included in the first, and that's the 'er ne'er-do-wells, the delinquents, the deplorables. These are the uneducated, the unrefined, the barstool philosophers who only know what they do not know and celebrate their ignorance and their fear with verbal insults and the willingness to violate any manner of law, to demonstrate their sense of self-righteous superiority and privilege. The second group has nothing to lose. They have little education, little prospect of gaining decent education. They have horrible jobs that they hate. They're underpaid. They're forced often to work overtime for which they receive no pay at all. They're exploited by corporate owners and bankers who form the leadership of the Republican Party and yet align with that party because Democrats include the black people and the brown people and the Asians, and I'm white after all. Again, big overlap in these first two groups, the racists and the deplorables. The third group is the white nationalist evangelicals, the fundamentalist born-agains, and it's not all evangelicals, it's, it's, it, it's not all fundamentalist Christians, but it's a significant piece of the pie. And these are people whose devotion to overthrowing democracy comes from a desire to replace it with a theocracy, to make America an all-Christian nation in direct violation of the founding principles and the First Amendment about Congress establishing no law regarding religion, the meaning of separating church from state. These are the megachurches, the materialists who preach a prosperity gospel that says Jesus wants you to be rich and forget those admonitions about the meek inheriting the earth were largely about a wrathful, vengeful God as portrayed in the Old Testament. They're more Jewish than Christian. But again, the point is really not about religion at all. It's about creating a theocracy, a form of government rigid and dogmatic and determined by the precepts and rules of a very narrow, conservative ultra-fundamental view of Christianity. The idea sometimes expressed as biblical masculinity, that men are superior to women, women must be submissive and obey their husbands, that war and other forms of violence is necessary. Hitler was a fundamentalist Christian. 
He believed he too was doing God's work and found justification for the Third Reich in the Bible. A set of carefully collected writings with enough contradictions that you can justify pretty much anything by cherry-picking sections of the Old and New Testaments. So the first three groups, again, to summarize of the Trump army or Trump base, which will, I'm arguing, continue on, is in many ways just getting warmed up, are the racists, the deplorables, the extreme fundamentalist, born-again evangelicals, those seeking to establish a theocracy. And the fourth group is the donor class, the oligarchs. These are the people who fund the first three, who support these terrorist organizations on the right, who ultimately pay for the pipe bombs and the assault rifles. These are the people in Wall Street, major corporate leaders, millionaires, billionaires, who have aligned with Russia in their attempt to undermine democracy. NATO, essentially, and our alliances with Europe and England. These are the four groups that we need to keep our eye on. Because even if we consider that the head of the snake has been cut off by Donald Trump having been voted out of office, the right wing is tenacious and will continue its attempt to destroy democracy. These people may call themselves conservative, but we've seen clearly that they are not. This is a fascist element. These are Nazis, neo-Nazis, reactionaries, and yet these are just words. And when you call someone a fascist or a Nazi, call a group or an institution fascistic or neo-Nazi, it can be heard as just a like a smear, just a derogatory word that you're using to insult. But they're actually accurate terms. They mean something. Make no mistake, there are many, many things that are wrong with this country. But there are some very important rights in our Constitution that demand defending human rights, civil rights, free speech, the right to assemble, to protest our grievances, search and seizure, inalienable rights that humans have struggled for hundreds of years to establish and guarantee. The hundreds of thousands of people who have fought and died, bled and suffered the carnage in our wake to gain these rights and then to view it as the Truman Show? What's on Channel 5 today? Oh, they're storming the Capitol. It's a revolution. And by the way, what's for dinner? And so a program about consciousness is a call for an awakening. To wake up, to manage our stress to focus in on the present moment, recognize and realize what's happening, and to know that silence is complicity. You have to do something. You have to take action. 
sacred activism, spiritually based with morality, ethics, and the highest of values, do something, whatever it is. Whether it's educating your crazy uncle, feeding people, or volunteering at a clinic or a rescuing animals or whatever it is, make a contribution someplace, do something to make a difference, to help make the world a better place. It's not enough just to be freaked out and wring our hands and complain. Do something positive, loving, and constructive. Be kind, be compassionate, be empathetic, be considerate, be gentle. Peace and love. Peace and love. We'll be back with our guest, Dr. Steve Tobman. Our topic is healing heartache. Stay tuned. You're listening to KPFK. Hi, this is Michael Benner, and I want to thank you for recognizing KPFK as one of the few channels for progressive news in Southern California. There's obviously no shortage of hate radio out there. They're trying to frighten you, and they have plenty of followers. Over 75 million people voted for Donald Trump, so we have to stand strong. Be resolute in our beliefs and support each other. If you're not a member of KPFK, now is the time to renew or become one. Join the resistance. We're the voice, but you are the power behind us. Go to kpfk.org and become a KPFK supporter with your donation. Do it now. We're 90.7 KPFK and kpfk.org. Resistance Radio. Powered by the people. Patty Smith, and you're listening to Fiercely Independent Pacifica Radio, KPFK 90.7 FM. People have the power. You're listening to KPFK in Los Angeles. It's time now for the Ageless Wisdom Mystery School. My name is Michael Benner, and we're here every Tuesday at 1 o'clock now. I want to thank you for tuning in and making this a habit. We have a great guest for you today, and I think you're going to benefit as well as enjoy our topic, which is healing heartache. How about that? I like the alliteration also, but this is going to have some practical tools and Hopefully some insights for you on how to deal with everything from anxiety and depression, apprehension to real grief and uh, hopelessness and despair and everything in between, you know. Uh, we call them negative feelings because they hurt. Uh, or if I was back east, I'd say because they hoit. But... Maybe they're not so negative. Maybe they have a value. 
And the healing heartache includes understanding the meaning and the significance of the feeling. Maybe it's just some part of us trying to get our attention, and maybe there's a reason for that. Let's find out with our guest, Dr. Steve Tobman. Steve, good afternoon, and welcome to KPFK. Thanks so much for having me here, Michael. It's a great pleasure. Well, Steve, you've written a book uh, called Buddha in the Trenches, which I'd like to touch on today, because I think, uh, like Eckhart Tolle and many other people, there are lessons in Buddhism that people don't usually attribute to Buddhist philosophy because it's off-putting, or it could be off-putting to some people who think of Buddhism as a, a religion. And indeed, in some places, it's practiced that way, though it's really not a religion, it's a philosophy. Was that your intention in writing Buddha in the Trenches to make these philosophies available in what's clearly a, a, a non-religious context? Yeah, I'm glad you brought that up because I think a lot of people do uh, sort of compare Buddhism as a religion to other world religions and decide my religion is the one that I'm practicing, therefore I can't be uh, embracing the principles and practices of Buddhism. Uh, when in fact, as you said, Buddhism is not a religion, it's a philosophy, it's a way of looking at life, a way of thinking, a way of focusing. Um, I always feel like if I can, you know, write notes from deep within my own uh, questions, uh, hopefully the answers will uh, inform me as well as others. And yes, I definitely looked at it as me uh, translating uh, what some might consider esoteric principles into the common domain, into a language everybody could understand. And yet beyond that, you also have a background as a hypnotherapist. How do you describe yourself professionally? I'm never quite sure the answer to that. I usually say, I, I used to have a business card that said author, speaker, hypnotist, whatever. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I knew that there'd be something else coming behind it, and I didn't want to have to print new cards. But you're making your candlestick. Exactly. I know. That may be the very next one, in fact. Uh, no, I, I uh, describe myself primarily as a, as a healer and a teacher. I think that, uh, you know, I, I live as a philosopher and I try to uh, uh, stay as authentic as possible in a way that allows uh, the discoveries that I'm making or the, or the um, insights that I'm gaining uh, to be available to others. And that's one of the ways that I get greater clarity myself. Because while we're talking about your book, Buddha in the Trenches, and the broad universal applications of Buddhist philosophy, uh, we're also not limited by that. When we talk about healing the heartache, mm -hmm. these are techniques that are found in philosophy, in clearly in psychology. Mm -hmm. uh, most sociologists have some sense that we have to face our pain. We can't really run away from it. Isn't that part of the problem and why our emotional discomfort is prolonged, that we ignore it, deny it, hold it in the body as tension, uh, repress it with being a workaholic or an alcoholic, or we have many strategies, don't we? There are many strategies to try to solve one problem that isn't really a problem, which is uh, an aversion, the aversion to discomfort, that if we weren't averse to it, if we weren't so resistant to our own discomfort, we might be able to move inward towards it rather than finding a million different ways to try to run away from it and in every case, coming up against it eventually, whether that is as a result of uh, practicing some form of addiction, 
and then it comes back and, you know, it, we, we return to the roost. We, we end up being miserable as a result of the addiction, which we took on in the first place to avoid pain. And now here we are in a compounded amount of pain. Uh, now I'm finding in the work I'm doing now uh, with uh, chronic pain sufferers that almost without exception, people with chronic pain, and that, by that I mean things like fibromyalgia or uh, arthritis and, you know, those kinds of pain that just linger on and on and on, uh, that in almost every case, uh, these are distractions from uh, from unexpressed emotions. Wow. And, and now you're focusing this in on what's really the heart of what I wanted to talk about today, sure. the idea that emotional pain, unfelt, often manifests as if it were physical pain. And we must admit, sometimes it's pretty hard to tell the difference. Yeah, it's 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 a conviction that we need to uh, to choose if we're going to heal. Because as you said, and we th we had this conversation a while before as well, that um, the entire paradigm in which we're living, the whole medical paradigm, is let's go ahead and medicate away this pain. Let's you know, let's try to uh, cover it up. And and you know, in the chronic pain world, uh, I use the analogy of a, of a fire alarm. You know, say that we. Uh, you know, we experience pain initially because of something that our, our mind is trying to tell us, trying to get our attention about. So we get, you know, a, a trauma or an injury of something of that sort, and we end up triggering a fire alarm within ourselves. And then along comes the firemen who put out the fire and uh, then presumably turn off the alarm and they leave. Well, what happens for a lot of people is the alarm doesn't get shut off. And so they're walking around with this constant alarm within them because of some unresolved part of the process the trauma, the self-doubt, whatever it is, the fear. And then you start to develop neurological circuitry that perpetuates the pain. And what most people will do is to go from doctor to doctor looking for different kinds of drugs to find the right ones that's going to finally suppress the fire alarm, where in fact that fire alarm is rigged in such a way that it's designed to get your attention. And so if you take a drug that dampens reaction, eventually it's going to stop working because that fire alarm is just going to get louder. You're going to, we're, we're, we're constantly being invited to heal. We're constantly being invited to acknowledge that there is some kind of an alarm within us and we need to be able to move towards it, to understand it, to do the inner work, to make changes. If I were a rapper, I'd say you train the brain to amplify your pain. <laughs> yeah, that's right. That's right. Exactly. Uh, the train and train the brain piece is the key. And, um, and again, you know, we, we can move easily between chronic, uh, physical pain, emotional pain, anxiety, and, and grief. You know, we're talking, uh, you and I kind of got on this conversation because of a, a recent loss that I've had. Yeah. And I'd like to go to that also. Let's establish the, a better understanding of this. We're saying that not only does unexpressed, unexperienced, emotional pain, heartache, despair, even apathy is a non-love feeling. It has its negative qualities. Can manifest in the body as physical pain, create all the appearances of a symptom of some injury or illness that our doctors will, in most cases being allopathic, do the best that they can to medicate away while ignoring the cause. And it seems that there's a clue in the fact that 
this pain wants to be acknowledged. It's it seems to be on our side. It's trying to you use the fire engine, the the fire alarm uh, allegory here. It's trying to get our attention. Hey, the house is on fire, uh-huh. and the clue that I'm talking about is the fact that if we ignore the pain, it increases. It gets worse. And then if we continue to ignore it even further, it can manifest as, oh, my aching back or the pain in my neck or my sacroiliac or, as you say, my fibromyalgia or all of the above. And it's remarkable how quickly uh, when people shift their attention from what they believe to be the problem, which is not the problem at all, it's just the outward manifestation, when they shift their attention back inward, and they start to explore and uh, process the deeper emotions. And we do that a lot with hypnosis, and we do it with other you know, forms of therapy, mindfulness practices, that ultimately the changes happen um, not always in the way they want them to and not always quite as quickly as they want them to, but sometimes magically and very quickly. Well, I think this is fascinating. It also dovetails into a greater understanding that every problem in our lives has a gift for us. The secret is to find it. Mm-hmm. And that can change your complete attitude about life being full of problems. Maybe our lives are full of gifts masking as problems that just want our attention. I, I heard a quote recently that said, life isn't happening to you, it's happening for you. Oh, nice. Yeah. And it reminds me also, Michael, do you remember uh, the book Handbook to Higher Consciousness? Ken Kai's back in the 70s. Oh, yes. Wait, what a yes. great, great book. And and in the book, he uh, he offers 12 pathways, which are essentially affirmations that you more or less memorize uh, that allow you to kind of reframe the way you look at everything in your life, how you react or respond, you know, and respond to issues and whatnot. And one of the one of the pathways you memorize says I welcome the opportunity, even if painful, that my minute-to-minute experience offers me to become aware of the addictions I need to reprogram, to become liberated from my robot-like emotional patterns. So another way of saying that is uh, just what you said, is let's reframe all of these things that we're looking at as as the enemy, as being very much our friend, very much a, a guide or a teacher, and uh, that automatically takes you out of the out of the realm of being at odds with what you're experiencing. Yeah, and that's so important. You're reminding me of that uh, teaching tale from the East about the Chinese farmer that's bragging to a neighbor about capturing all these wild horses. And isn't that a wonderful thing, he says to his neighbor. And the neighbor, being a wise person, said, well, it may be. And then his son, while working with the horses, breaks his leg one day Farmer says to his neighbor, isn't that a horrible thing? My son broke his leg. And the guy says, well, it may be. And then the army comes to draft him into the wars, the foreign war. And they don't take him because he's got a broken leg. And again, isn't that a wonderful thing? Well, that, you know, maybe. So... We have to be careful about judging things based on their appearances. Yeah, because you know that at some point during the course of your life, you're going to take an experience that used to be something that you rejected and that you felt badly about, and you'll finally see either the wisdom in it or the humor in it. 
And I always say to my clients, you know, everybody will tell you in the midst of a crisis, someday we'll look back at this and laugh. And I say, why wait? Well, very nice. Very nice. Why? Let's, uh, let's go back to, uh, grief and loss. And you mentioned Woody and, Mm-hmm. Again, that's really how this program came about. I get your newsletter regularly, and you wrote in there recently about the loss of your dog, and uh, even your phone message says when someone calls you, if, you know, I'm not here, uh, I'm I'm either, uh, I forget exactly how you phrased it, doing this or that, or I'm out taking Woody for a walk. So he's top of mind for you. He's he's your pal. He's your buddy. And you lost this dog. This happens. They, they never live long enough, do they? And, never. And you can't prepare for it, even with skills like many of us may have. It's, it's still a gut punch. And yet, you analyzed the messages that you received of sympathy and the condolences, and found that some were more touching than others. Share a little of that process, because I found it quite insightful. Thank you. Uh, it was an interesting process, and it's still going on, of course. I mean, my uh, beloved boy uh, passed a month ago yesterday, and um, it's been a tough month because, you know, the, the emotions are, are raw, and even for somebody like myself or like you or anybody who's practicing mindfulness and practicing self-awareness, you know, we'd like to feel like we're not uh, clinging to the past. We'd like to think that we are not bound by our emotions, that the, we are bigger than them. But some emotions are pretty darn big and they're pretty uh, all, in, all consuming. So uh, in, in all that, you know, I've been uh, really so thankful that I've spent so much time practicing uh, the things I've practiced, mindfulness and what, and gratitude. And so, uh, so I've been going through my gratitude practices. And in the meantime, I get all these, you know, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of, of messages about Woody. I've gotten dozens of cards and, you know, hundreds of uh, Facebook messages and phone calls and whatnot. And what I notice is that there are different ways that people respond to, um, to loss, to, you know, uh, respond to somebody else who's going through a loss. And for me, one of the ways uh, that has come about quite often is there will be people saying things like, he's in a better place, or, uh, well, you know, he's not really gone, he's still with you, he's, you know, he's walking right by your side, he's in your heart, you'll never lose him. Um, and in some ways, and I'll preface all this, Michael, by saying there are no bad, you know, I, I never feel badly about anybody who's attempting to be uh, helpful or loving or supportive. Even if their efforts are ill-informed, I don't therefore feel badly about them. I still feel grateful that they're trying their best to reach out and give comfort. But those kinds of statements don't really land very well. And I and I wouldn't have necessarily known that. I mean, I might have known it to some extent in my educated intelligence. but to a great extent, most of those things, if you break them down, are somebody trying not to have you feel what you feel. They're saying, oh, you know, it's it's all okay. They're not really gone. Well, if they're not really gone, then I shouldn't be grieving. I shouldn't be sad. But I am, right? So, uh, so I've got to face the fact that I'm going to feel a loss, and I need to go through what I'm going through in order to finally come to the place where I can say, yes, Woody's still with me. I can still feel his presence. So... 
What type of messages did you find most touching that, that actually had the effect that your friend was trying to convey? Yeah, so the ones that really had the greatest impact on me, and again, I wouldn't have known this had I not gone through the process, uh, had I not lost Woody, and that is uh, having somebody acknowledge the, the, the uh, enormity of the loss and the power of the relationship that I had with him. You know, there are a lot of people who knew Woody and who knew of our relationship, and the people who came forward and said, boy, you know, I realize how much he must be in pain. This dog was an amazing, amazing being. In fact, he he helped me see something, or he, uh, my kid got a dog because he met your dog, or you taught me so much about the relationship between a person and a dog by watching how you are with him. All of the things that were, that you might think, oh, I don't want to say that because it's going to accentuate the feeling of loss. That wasn't what it did. It, it helped me reconnect with a sense of pride and purpose and gratitude. I've, I had 14 years with this amazing being, and I want people to know that. And I want them to know that, uh, you know, I want them to reflect it back to me in case I feel lost. So it's counterintuitive. It really is almost backward that rather than thinking of uplifting somebody's spirit by helping them refuse to acknowledge what's really going on. We suffer poorly when we gird our loins and hold our breath and say everything is fine. We grieve well when we surrender to the feeling and allow those waves of grief to sweep us away. We do survive. Yeah, I, that's really well said. And I think it goes back to what we started uh, alluding to a little bit earlier, which is that in almost every case, the answer to uh, emotional distress or physical distress uh, is in moving towards it, not away from it. Yeah. Let's talk more about this right after the break. You're listening to the Ageless Wisdom Mystery School on KPFK. I'm your host, Michael Benner. My guest today, Dr. Steve Tobman. He's the author of a book called Buddha in the Trenches. And today we're talking about healing heartache. Stay with us. We'll be right back after this. Hi, this is Michael Benner, and I want to thank you for recognizing KPFK as one of the few channels for progressive news in Southern California. There's obviously no shortage of hate radio out there. They're trying to frighten you, and they have plenty of followers. Over 75 million people voted for Donald Trump, so we have to stand strong. Be resolute in our beliefs and support each other. If you're not a member of KPFK, now is the time to renew or become one. Join the resistance. We're the voice, but you are the power behind us. Go to kpfk.org and become a KPFK supporter with your donation. Do it now. We're 90.7 KPFK and kpfk.org. Resistance Radio. Powered by the people. Hi, this is Robbie Krieger from The Doors, and you are listening to Fiercely Independent KPFK 90.7 FM, Los Angeles 98.7 FM in Santa Barbara, and for the world at www.kpfk.org. Support free speech and free form radio. Peace. You're listening to the Ageless Wisdom Mystery School on KPFK. We're at 90.7 FM all over Los Angeles, 
in Santa Barbara, we're heard at 98.7 FM. Northern San Diego, 93.7. And in Ridgecrest and China Lake, up in the high desert, 99.5 FM. Thanks for being with us today. We're here every Tuesday now, a new show called The Ageless Wisdom. And we're talking today about healing heartache. Well, we're talking about a lot of things, altered states and the benefits of deep relaxation or profound relaxation, the overlap of self-hypnosis, meditation, what used to be called autogenic training, progressive muscular relaxation. There's a lot of names for it. But something wonderful begins to happen when we relax, when we close our eyes, which reduces stimulus to the brain, take a few slow, deep breaths, and on that exhale, create and sense a feeling of letting go in your body. Brainwave shift, a number of other things happen, but brainwaves actually lower And that's often used as an indication of various states of consciousness or levels of awareness. And Steve, I thought we could talk a little bit about that. The normal awake and aware state is a beta level state. And that's the monkey mind. That's the frenzy. That's the multitasking state. But below that, it's not just go to the meditative level. There's a number of, I mean, it's a tall building with many floors below that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I um, what I find is, as you know, I also do stage hypnosis, um, and it's a great demonstration of, of how our uh, how our imaginations can be unleashed in a, in a meditative in a meditative slash hypnotic state. And in those situations, we're looking for slightly deeper hypnotic trance because. Uh, usually need to get somebody down to about a theta level in order for them to start to manifest some of these uh, these states that produce things like hallucination and whatnot. That's, uh, that's what it takes. But for the kind of work that we do therapeutically, you know, for, to heal people of heartache or anxiety or chronic pain, um, we could do that in an alpha state. Right? It just means like slow those brain waves down a bit, um, slow down the immediacy of having to take what you feel and try to make it go away. And to just Get to that place where you're able to embrace what you're experiencing. So if our listeners want to begin to practice meditation for the healing of emotional hurt we've been discussing today, Mm -hmm. and they may not be skilled meditators, they close their eyes, they breathe, they feel a letting go in the body, how do they know when they're there? <laughs> what else happens that would indicate that this is different? Some people will experience uh, kind of a warmth in their facial, in, in, in the skin around their face. Sometimes people will feel a little bit of fluttering of the eyelids. Uh, but more than anything else, it's just a, a, an enhanced sense of well-being. People will just start to feel themselves kind of coming into themselves Maybe feel the weight of their bodies pressing down into the chair. They start to become more aware of of uh, the physical and less aware of the busy mind. And then there's some there there often is a, a, a natural detachment from thought. 
It's like, oh, I guess I'm thinking that right now. But I'm not, you know, lost in my thought. Thought becomes a little bit more of a dreamy type of a thing. I started quite an argument on Quora one day when, responding to a question, I shared a device I had learned years ago. I don't even remember where I learned it, but I would write on the uh, blackboard or or whiteboard, whatever, in a class, uh, the following sentence. I can hear the voice in my head reading this sentence. And then I would cover that up with like a video screen or something. And when I was ready, I'd say, okay, I'm going to raise the video screen and I want you to read the sentence I've written on the board to yourself silently three times. I can hear the voice in my head reading this sentence. I can hear the voice in my head reading this sentence. As you might imagine, I would then ask, so who believes they are the voice in their head? Everybody said, yeah, of course, obviously, I, I can hear the voice that's reading this sentence. I am that voice. And I said, well, I totally understand how you can feel that way. However, who is this? And I would circle, I can hear. So it's the subject-object split, and we believe we're the object of our lives, you know, that I'm the voice in my head. We haven't accounted for the fact that some part of you is listening to that. And the detachment that you're talking about creates that opportunity to observe your thoughts and your feelings without being the thinker. Right. It's, it's almost impossible to describe that. You have to experience it. There has to come a time when you recognize that you are no longer just the voice in your head, but that you're also the observer of the voice in your head. Well, I think a lot of young people have experiences of depersonalization mm -hmm. or this kind of, uh, or derealization that's sometimes called. And it can be very puzzling and they don't know how to describe it. It feels very dreamlike. It's fugue. Mm -hmm that they get into and nothing seems real it's all and it's an anxiety thing mm -hmm. but who are they going to tell and how are they going to describe it and so if you're not aware of the benefits of this kind of perspective this i call it an elevated perspective looking down on your life from a slightly detached point of view up above it, uh, that can it can be sort of a frightening experience. It can, and when we've been trained to be somebody, I am this, I am this somebody, I am this compilation of thoughts and beliefs, and uh, you know, I am my business card, I am the, you know, the the role that I play in the light in life, and and if all of a sudden you see yourself or experience yourself as something other than that, uh, that can be very frightening. But that's really the dawn of awareness because you were never that of those other things to begin with. Yeah, the idea of the non-self or the no-self. I know this gets real esoteric, and I, and I don't want to go too far into that. But self-identity is an issue we deal with throughout our lives. Who am I? I mean, who am I really? And am I just an aggregation of moods and attitudes and belief systems? 
is there a singular self, a CEO in my brain that's running the show, or is it a compilation of influences? I think evolutionary psychologists are starting to suggest that what we call the self is actually a stream or several streams of multiple influences that we perceive as singular, but if so, why do we argue with ourselves? Everybody knows how it feels to have those tugging wars inside your head. That begs the question, well, <laughs> whose side am I on? <laughs> who's in charge of this? Uh, you know, we're all bosos on this bus. Yeah, who's running this show? <laughs> what do you say to people that ask you about that? I say keep meditating. I say stay, you know, stay in the inquiry and don't look for answers because the very act of looking for an answer is um, is remaining in your ego. You know, answers that that we're going to think are satisfying to us are going to be answers that sound a lot like what we already know. Uh, so we're, we're we're suggesting that you go into the unknown, that you just allow yourself to be without answers and uh, and see what that feels like. Be more, be more uh, uh, tolerant of whatever experience arises, and you can't go wrong with silence. You know, silence will always lead you to a uh, to a to a new way of being with yourself. Steve, I think that's really profound. The idea that we don't always need answers; just keep asking good questions. Mm -hmm. Why settle? For the answer, even if it resolves a problem, it may not be the only answer or the best answer. It was just an answer that may even in a practical way have resolved something, but there's always more. What, what if you know, it becomes almost obvious if we dwell on it here? The unanswerable question continually to question these existential, who am I, why am I here, what am I for, what's it all about? Maybe we could find some peace in just accepting that the awareness that flows from that inquiry persists. Yeah, I think there's, there's, a, there's a kind of um, faith that, that needs to exist, not, not hope. Because hope to me is kind of a victim strategy. Oh, I hope things get better. I hope I get better answers. Uh, but a kind of faith that under, underlying all of this is, um, uh, it's a generally beneficent universe. Generally speaking, you're going to find answers or, or respond to needs in a way that, um, that move you forward, not backwards. You're, you're going to grow. I mean, everything grows, right? And so, uh, so insights will arise and that's okay. And you're going to feel certain things and you're going to contract around them from time to time and think that you understand them. And then you keep going back to the idea that if I, um, if I don't know what to do here, if I just allow myself to be open, that eventually something is going to become clear that isn't clear now. You know, here I am going through grief with Woody and I don't know what my next move is. I've spent the last several years being Woody's daddy, be my primary role in life, and uh, and I also was doing things professionally that uh, that required I be in front of large 
groups of people that no longer really is uh, is the way I'm living my life. So, you know, what does life look like? You know, I was going into 2021. A lot of people are asking themselves that question. What does it look like? And uh, there was a, I think it was the third Zen patriarch who said something about, do you have the patience to wait until the dust settles and the answer becomes clear in and of itself, right? So there's this this quality of, of faith in the fact that once the dust settles, there will be some clarity. You know, if you have a glass filled with, like, muddy water and, you know, you keep on stirring it, it's going to keep being muddy. But if you settle it down and let it sit for a while, the the mud kind of precipitates to the bottom and eventually the water becomes clear. So that's a natural process. And I think we are equally uh, at the effect of natural processes, that clarity is something that happens when we don't keep stirring things up. When we aren't like coming from a place of, place of fear, from a place of the need to figure things out quickly. That's why it's so important for us to learn silence. Well, that's certainly an expanded concept of faith not faith in a particular savior or a religion or that you're going to end up in heaven and not that other bad place. Right. Um, but a faith that the universe is conspiring to grow you and heal you and enlighten you. And as I said earlier, the game is rigged. If we really knew that the universe is singular, that separation is largely an illusion, that it's all organic, it's all growing and expanding and, and healing. And, you know, the macrocosm is in the microcosm. So that would be a nice thing to, that would be a wise thing to remind ourselves when we're feeling desperate or overwhelmed or facing what appears to be a disaster. And no matter how many times in life you find out, well, looking back on it now, it wasn't as bad as I feared it was, but it's a hard lesson to learn. Yeah, we're slow learners by nature. We we need to get them, you know, more than once, and we, we need to uh, – open to the lesson, you know, and learn from the lesson. Uh, so, uh, and be compassionate with ourselves about the fact that we are slow learners. It's just, that happens to be the reality that, you know, we keep trying to go back to our old ways, our old thinking, but sometimes it just, you know, they say sometimes you get it with a feather, sometimes you get it with a Mack truck. But it's ultimately about having the necessary strength to be able to take each moment and, and, and resist the urge to fall into reaction. That's the faith part. That's the faith mind. Uh, you know, that the third Zen patriarch talked about faith mind. I could walk into a situation without having any inkling about how I'm going to respond to that situation, but somehow have faith that I will respond appropriately because of all the practices that I've been undertaking, all the, you know, the constant working out because, you know, mindfulness is a workout. Meditation is a workout. You're gaining the necessary strength to, uh, to look at a situation from a, from an elevated place. Well, we've heard over and over again in our lives that love is the antidote to fear, that love is the answer, love is the word. And yet I think we need to remind ourselves and perhaps each other that that includes the qualities of peace, 
which is inner, not just some external condition, some sort of peace of mind, tranquility, and a feeling of safety, that love is feeling safe and calm and, and peaceful. And I hear you saying if we model that, it's contagious. I think it is. I think if we come from, I am safe, you know, in the, in the most profound sense of the word, I am safe and I'm going to create a safe space. It's okay for you to be the way you are, but just in, in communicating and interacting and, and doing it from a place of love, sometimes, you know, people start to pull down their guard a little bit. You know, just, you know, if you're stuck in this kind of tense, you know, contracted place and you get around somebody who's not, triggered by it and you could feel their calmness then then what you'll do i think naturally because as we said everybody is naturally the universe is conspiring to teach us and to grow us i might just let go of a little bit of my tension and geez you know i still feel safe go lo and behold okay let me let go of a little bit more of it oh my goodness maybe i could put the gun down and uh maybe i could just see the humor of all of it maybe i could realize that it's not as big a crisis as we think it is and uh, and maybe we'll all come together in the long run. Steve, how do people find out more well, about your books? You have more than one. Mm -hmm. Your uh, your newsletter and any events that you may be doing. If you have some contact info for us, a web page or something. Sure. The the easiest way to kind of dip your toes in the water is to just go to bestofsteve dot com. Um, and Best of Steve will, uh, will allow you to uh, add your name to my mailing list. And one of the things you'll receive is a free digital download of the first chapter of, um, I'm not sure if it's, if it's set up to be Buddha in the Trenches or Bulletproof. Bulletproof is essentially the, uh, the, the new writing of Buddha in the Trenches with just a less reference to Buddhism, essentially. Of course, all of my books are available on Amazon. Yeah, I think going to bestofsteve.com is a great place to start, or go to stevetaubman.com. And then for those of you who are specifically interested in learning more about the work I do in healing, uh, probably the best place to go is to theanxietydoc.net. Theanxietydoc.net. And you'll learn a little bit about how these kinds of principles, hypnosis and mindfulness um, and positive psychology principles get applied uh, in overcoming uh, pain and anxiety. Wow. Great show. Thank you, Steve. It's a, it's been a pleasure. Um, we've emailed and, uh, chatted briefly, but never really a sit down like this. And I've really enjoyed it. I appreciate it. Oh, I love it. Yeah. Thanks so much for having me, Michael. And, uh, best to everybody listening. Have a great new year. Indeed. Happy new year. Uh, Dr. Steve Taubman, my guest today, talking about healing heartache and related topics. Thanks very much for being with us. Make a, a plan to join us every Tuesday at 1 o'clock. This is Michael Benner. You're listening to KPFK Los Angeles. <laughs>